The idea of this podcast is that I am trying to find the meaning of life by asking, and you're gone. He's gone. He's left the <laughs> One second. He's left Hold the on. room. You, this is going to be a great, this is going to be a great other. poll for Instagram. This is it. This is what, this is, look, if gays need anything to, to talk about their past, it's goddamn coffee. So, all right, <laughs> you go ahead. Oh my gosh. Today is an interview with one of my dear friends, one of my best friends in the whole wide world, Matteo Lane. He is a comedian. He is an artist. He is so, I mean, there's really not enough words. Matteo does everything and he does everything exceptionally well. So I wanted to ask him about his drive. I wanted to ask him about how he became just so prolific at, at everything that he tackles. And, you know, he speaks a bajillion languages and he's just like, uh, he does it all and top on top of being a great friend. So, Mateo, um, if you're hearing this, thank you for doing the podcast, but also to everybody else. Um, if you're not familiar with Mateo, look, find him on Instagram at Mateo Lane. Um, find anything he's done. He's just once you see Mateo and once you see his stand up, you just immediately fall in love and are blown away by just how great he is. So, um, you know, it, it was great to talk to him about just the meaning of life, to talk to him about um, just trying to make it in comedy, trying to pursue a dream, trying, you know, the people who influence you throughout your life. And it was just a really nice conversation, a really great interview. And I'm excited to hear it again. I had a great time talking to him. And so let's just do it. This is Matteo Lane. I'm Ryan Beck. And this is The Meaning of Life. It says recording. The red light's on. The red light is on, Matteo. Um, okay, so, so, <laughs> like I was saying, the idea is that I'm going to find the meaning of life by asking people what's meaningful to them. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's like the premise of the podcast. So my first question, which I've been asking everybody, and I just want to say I'm sorry before I ask you this, but my first question is, will you tell me your name and who you are? <laughs> is this an AA meeting? Um, or they're anonymous, right? Um, my name is Mateo Lane, and I'm a stand-up comedian. Great. Okay. Great. Woo. I know it's a, it fills people with anxiety. <laughs> it fills people with anxiety to be asked like who are you because you have to label yourself. I have to think. You have to think. You have to like it it takes a, a level of vulnerability that I feel like we um don't usually do, you know, or self-realization, I guess. True. I would have been in an absolute tailspin if someone said just like, "Yeah, just tell me who you are." I'm like, "I can't do that." I mean, I feel like I, I've created a lot of identities for myself. Um, an artist, a singer, a comedian, uh, a thirst trap, you know, Instagram guy, mm -hmm. uh, gay. <laughs> but, um, well, that I, I one, mean, that one, it, it, you didn't create for yourself. The Instagram gay person? The, no, just being gay. Oh yeah, no, that was just that's uh, um that that came that came with the package. Yeah, uh, yeah. I guess I guess to answer like in a more existential way, I'm a, a anxious, vulnerable, um, needy, likable person. That's great. Yeah, I think I feel like that checks out. Mm hmm. Um, insecure and overly compensating a lot. Yeah, I feel like I do the exact same things. That's um, but 
basically, I'm at, I'm like trying to figure out what it is that gives people meaning. Do you feel like you have meaning in your life? Do you feel like you have purpose overall? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you always felt that way? Yes. I mean, not purpose in the sense of like an Oprah episode where she was like, I use myself for the service of God. Like I'm not religious and spiritual in that sense. Um, I don't know if everyone has purpose in the sense that we're all meant to be uh, these profound leaders and changing the world. But I mean, purpose in existence, just as life as is, I think can be as simple as um, even just for like the smaller scale, like have I done anything to anyone else's life to leave my mark in a positive way? Have I lived life, absorbed life, and then exported something that is helping the cause? Yeah. You know, I, I think it's, it can be small, you know, I mean, it doesn't have to, it could be something as big as, you know, um, I can't even like, you know, in my mind, Maria Callas changing how we view opera and art and drama and it, or it can be the owner of a bodega store, you know, helping people out when they're not making ends meet and doing the right thing. You know, it, there's so many different yeah. ways to progress, whether that's artistically or, um, I, I think that's really interesting because a lot of people, I think, view purpose and meaning. I mean, I know I do on these really large scales, right? Like we all expect to be um, or or to really make a difference is is the people that would be in the news, uh, like social leaders or big things like that. But you're kind of speaking towards like a interpersonal, like in your own life is no matter the scale. Because I think in some aspect, we need big people like uh, Whitney Houston's Lady Gaga, these huge artists to look at something, to dream towards something, to hope for bigger than the lives that we have growing up. But I think, you know, uh, those are good examples of things to strive for, elements of those people to be influenced by to, to better your own life. Uh, or at least show you that there's a different life out there. I just watched the Sophia Loren interview, and she grew up in Naples, Italy after the war, poor. They had no money. They had no food. Her father left her, and she said the only thing she had to show that there was an existence outside of her hellhole was movies. Mm-hmm. That was the only thing she saw. Oh, there is a life outside of the life that I'm living. There is something else outside of here. So, you know, I think being an entertainer and being a comedian, there's a, there's a huge selfish component to it. There's yeah. a huge narcissistic component to it. In other words, we're constantly worried about ourselves because in a way we are our own brand and we are the only, we better believe we're funny or how we're going to pay rent, you know? So, um, you know, I think, but the other part of that though, is when you get people who say, uh, because of you, I came out of the closet because of you, I, you don't understand how hard my week was and you made me laugh and da da da. And it's like, Oh yeah. You know, it's not, not like I'm healing people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, but I'm not, we're so involved in our own narcissism and our own world that I think we sometimes forget the impact we're leaving on people. Yeah. You know, I, I don't think Joan Rivers knew she affected my life in such a positive way. I don't think Mariah Carey knows or well, Mariah probably does know, but you know, it's like someone like, <laughs> yeah, when you were in an elevator with her, I feel like you probably told her. I did. I hugged her. She <laughs> hugged me like I was the help, but you know, I, I, I um, I think Joan was probably thinking I'm fighting uphill. Fuck these people. I'm a woman. My husband killed himself. I'm going to prove to everyone I'm the funniest. And to me, it was, you've given me a voice and a strength I could have never, ever 
I would not even know where to possibly look for that kind of strength. And it was right. single-handedly Joan Rivers that allowed me to live my life as an open gay man on stage. And therefore, young queer people are watching that saying, wow, I didn't know that that was possible for us to do it. I mean, there's so, it's like this right. ripple Right, it kind of trickles down. And that's what's so, I think that's, that's so great because I, I always try to remember, I mean, it's really hard to do when you feel like shit and you feel isolated or maybe you feel kind of rudderless. You don't know what you want to do with your life or nothing's working, but you, it is important to try to check in with like, you can't underestimate your impact on other people. Um, you know, that things that you have done already or things that you have yet to do. And I think, um, I want to ask you about something cause I, I asked you, did you always feel that way? Did you always feel like you had a larger purpose or like basically you said yes. You said you have always felt that way. Is this? Yeah, yeah, but I don't know if I would word it as a larger purpose. Do you see what I'm saying? Like that's uh, almost so overwhelming, and it becomes more. It dehumanizes in a way. I, I feel not in a bad way of what I'm doing, but makes it almost inaccessible. So, yeah. like to have this larger purpose puts a pressure on me. You don't feel a calling. Or, uh, you don't feel a. I feel like, a calling because I feel my life. I was subconsciously searching for purpose or meaning or a calling or a placement or a belonging. And I never fully, I never really felt quite connected to all the different aspects of artists and being gay and this and that until I found comedy. And suddenly I was surrounded by people that were, I was so like-minded, you know, and I, I wake up every morning, zero regrets, in my life because in Chicago, when I was living in Chicago, mm -hmm. I just always felt like in the back of my mind, I'm missing out on something. And I think that so was what it was what like an means. internal, like you had to reconcile something internally as opposed to, um, you, you know, it's not like this exterior thing where you're like, I'm destined to do this. It was like, you had something inside of you that you needed to find what it is. What is it that I enjoy? Yeah. It was like, I was a circle or what is Barbara Streisand said? I'm a bagel on a plate full of onion rolls. Like I just finally found my other bagels. Yeah. That's it. I just wanted to find my, you know, finding my people, so to speak, helped me realize my wants in life and my goals in life. But it's you, very so, muddled until that point. Right. And so you do have that point. You have that point in Chicago that ultimately leads you, leads you to New York and continuing on your path career wise. And I mean, you've had several moments in your life where you've found an identity for yourself. Um, mm -hmm. Some of them have stuck, some of them haven't. Mm -hmm. um, but what do you do in the, like now, right? You've found comedy. You've found being comfortable as a gay man in the modern era. You know, you're like, you've found being comfortable um, being an artist and being all of the different things, a singer, someone who speaks all these languages. Like you've found... Uh, a, an identity and a way to combine all of it. So basically it's like, what do you do now? Like what, how do you, what are the things you do each day that continue to drive you and continue to make you feel like there is a, a reason to get out of bed? Um, I would say, well, I, you know, when you do comedy for, I'm going to ask that question in a long way. Sure. So when you do comedy, there's so much you're figuring out from the beginning. I mean, 
add on to the fact that you don't know how to stand on stage, hold a mic, tell jokes, you're nervous to tell jokes in front of other comics. You're, there's a whole hierarchy of comics above you, below you. There's, you know, judgment. Add on to that that I'm gay and was usually one of the few gay people or only in a lot of shows or open mics. So I'm in an environment where I'm constantly explaining myself or constantly even with myself trying to figure out well, what, which is it? Is it, am I the gay guy who does comedy? Am I a comic who happens to be gay? You know, um, when you're something new, people aren't really, it's, it's hard for them to adjust. And so I, it makes yeah. sense if people want to categorize you. And also to categorize you as gay is probably subconsciously a way for people to be dismissive of you. Mm-hmm. Well, he's not a threat to me because he's this, you know? So I've had a lot of people say he just does gay because, you know, that's, that's his thing. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of long years of internalized homophobia, long years of struggling with my identity and sexuality and long years of becoming confident in that through other queer people. And then to try and make all of that uh, uh, tangible and adaptable and accessible to audiences and comics alike is not an easy feat. Um, So now, uh, because we're not doing shows and we're stuck at home and this and that, blah, 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 it's become less of needing to be seen and heard and understood. And everything has become more focused on smaller yet larger pieces. So I'm not worried about stage time. I'm not worried about learning how to write a joke. I'm not worried about stage presence. I mean, I figured those out. They are always evolving, but the base of those things to me are understood. So I'm now more concerned about what is what is all the things that I've learned and how do I how do I bring these things together to create something that I really want to sink my teeth into and care about something and then move into a larger space. So that's a TV show or a cartoon show, which both things I'm sort of working on. Mm-hmm. Um, so that right now is my main goal is taking everything I've learned from the Creek open mics to the comedy seller to opening for Aziz to a Netflix special and saying, okay, I'm not gonna be hopping around the comedy world anymore, looking for approval. I'm now going to create something I really care about and hopefully present it to the world and help elevate me to another level in my career that I can have more access to make more things that I want. So is it like, do you think that you find meaning in having something else to accomplish or accomplishments? Is it like not, not necessarily getting what you want and succeeding, but like having goals? I think it's intrinsically being an artist is striving for perfection. So every time you reach a certain level, it's like a video game. Now I have this much more to do mm-hmm. and that can be damaging and that can be, it can be uh, crippling. It can be. It can be. It can send right. you in the other way, where you feel like I can't do anything. I don't know what to do, and like, Correct. like the idea of being in a grocery store, not knowing what cereal to be to pick, to pick, even though you're surrounded by it. Right, but it's one thing at a time. Plan things out. Write things out. I've always kind of had a um, uh, a sense of where I'm going and what I want. And now, is that I've, is that always been true since you were a kid? Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think I just, that is? I, I don't know. I visualize things and work my ass off to get there. I think I'm lucky in the sense that being a visual artist, a painter and a, and a drawer or an illustrator, then moving to singer, 
and now comedian that art forms all evolve in the same way. I mm. see the end goal or what I think is the end goal. And then it just, be, it just becomes about discipline and practice to get there. So I knew I wanted a large vocal range. I knew I wanted to match Mariah Carey's riffs. I knew I wanted to, you can't just do them. You have to do them every single day, work towards those goals. It's a great amount of discipline. So don't smoke cigarettes. Don't go drinking. Don't do, you know, I will sacrifice this sort of like in the moment now fun for what I think is the greater good, but the downside of that is I'm always thinking in the future and I rarely enjoy the present moment because I'm constantly worried about the future. But, you know, same does that thing scare with you? Does that scare you to not find yourself enjoying the present moment? Do you feel regret in any sense for like different times in your lives? Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't translate well. My neurotic compulsion to be the best that it can be serves very well in my work does not serve very well in my personal life, relationship life. So that's the struggle mm -hmm. is, is that that's the struggle for me. Yeah, that's where I've hit the, balance, the struggle. Right. Because right. what makes you successful in one area, I think makes a lot of people probably envious of your hustle. If you want to just label it as like a large, you know, just as a word, it's, it's, you have a lot of work ethic and you I have completely a lot. I throw enjoy yourself. work. Hmm? I enjoy work. That is yeah. something I like. I like work. Um, but, but, you know, I think I'm very lucky in the sense that, like, I'm 34 now, which is the age we all start chilling out and we're not going out every night and drinking. And stuff. I, when I moved to New York and I was working as a, a storyboard artist for TV commercials, I, in my mind, was like, I will become a comedian. I will, be, I will become a famous comedian. That was what I told myself. Mm -hmm kind of a large, in a strange way, abstract goal. What does that mean? Famous comedian. What am I going to be? Ellen, you know, but um, having that goal in my mind helped me clear everything else out. So that means I wasn't dating. I was barely drinking. I did not party. I barely went out. Everything became about comedy. And because other comics are neurotic and crazy like me, you, Evan, Sashir, all these people in our lives, mm -hmm. we just, we could do it together and not feel, it was like being, it was like being a meth addict with other meth addicts. Of course, we're not going to feel bad about doing meth. We're all doing meth, but it's like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's, yeah. It's we're all, we're all comedy. sacrificing our personal relationships in the pursuit of this larger goal. That's right. And I, and I'm someone who I come off very independent, but I, I look, I grew up surround. My family means everything. The hardest phone call I ever had to make in my life was, calling my aunt Cindy to tell her I'm moving to New York city. Why is my agent calling right now? Go away. Um, the hardest thing I ever had to do is make a phone call to my aunt Cindy and tell her that I'm moving to New York city. We both sobbed on the phone because with Italian families, the way it works is you, you just don't, you don't leave. Mm -hmm. We, this is it. We, this is it. The way the family works is it. And to leave, it's like, it's a huge sacrifice and it's painful because my niece, I don't get to, especially this year, I don't get to see her. My right. other, my other cousin's kids who for all intents and purposes are my other nieces and nephews. Like that, that part has really damaged me is not being there with my, with my family, you know? Do you feel like, do you feel like in some ways um, upset that you have this like need to create and to go, um, 
make new things and like that's the path that you found for yourself that you need to you need to do it it's it's something that you have to do right um become an artist but do you feel bad does it make you feel bad to have to sacrifice things like being with your family because i know how much your family means to you well i think it just is i think it's just the reality you know i'd probably be more miserable sacrificing my dreams to stay with the way my family functions than if I had gone. And I think they feel the same. It's not that my Anthony didn't want me to go to New York and live my dreams. It's just that. It was just sad. It's sad. Yeah. You know, my mother, who I'm the closest to, probably than anybody in the world, knew very well. I mean, she sobbed, but she knew, she knew this is, she just knew. She knew. It's like when I was four. Like, they just knew that I was going to have a different life than the rest of the family. And that I did. Yeah. So did you always feel supported by your family? Because that's, always. And that's, always. that's like, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's not entirely typical of like a gay four-year-old's life. I'm not saying that when I did effeminate things when I was younger, adults didn't try and steer me the other way. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was definitely a huge impact in my life, wearing dresses and heels and all these effeminate, playing with dolls. I was taught very quickly by the adults around me that this is wrong. You should be shamed for this. This is not what boys do. And I held on to that for a long, 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 long time because I was just told this is a, this is no. Now, looking back, do my parents or aunts and uncles or grandparents, do, do they look at that? Do I look at that as homophobia? No. Do I look at them as trying to protect me? Yeah. But that's why what I'm doing and other queer people showing themselves out there as their true selves will help young kids not have to go through that. You know, when I went to DragCon last time, there's literally a mother and her seven-year-old child walking around and they've got a purple wig and a dress on. And I thought I would have loved to do that when I was seven. Yeah. But I wasn't, I wasn't given Society that wasn't doing that. Like it wasn't no, really. We just, a... I was born in the, the height of the AIDS pandemic. I was born at a, at a very, 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 the most difficult time to be a queer person in America. And, you know, the AIDS pandemic, people often think, well, it was a disease and it went through the gay community and they died. And, uh, you know, years later we got rights. No, it was, it, it forced us out of the closet. Yeah. Because America was so homophobic, still is so homophobic that there was, I mean, Fran Leibowitz talks about, she goes, the idea of gay marriage to me was not even a concept. It was, it, it, it wasn't even talked about because people couldn't even be out. If you were out, you were fired from your job, you were shamed, you all this stuff. So the fact that the AIDS pandemic happened was just, it forced us out of the closet. I was born at a time when that was all happening. So by the time I turned 18, it was going to gay bars, trust you and me that that was still lingering there. Mm -hmm. You know, I, and also too, when I, I think about coming out of the closet, it's just so different now. I had no one to tell me anything. I didn't know anything. I didn't know Stonewall. I didn't know gay history. I didn't know Harvey Milk. I didn't know anything about the AIDS pandemic. I didn't know what a drag queen was. I didn't even know what a rim job was. I didn't know anything. I didn't fucking know. <laughs> You know, and so and you didn't really to, have a place to to find these things out either. I mean, the, the internet we had was no very Instagram. new. We had for no us. gay people on TV. We had, we had nothing. So you know, it's like I remember Ellen. Ellen came out of the closet and then was immediately shunned. 
Mm-hmm. That's what I remember about that experience. And then I remember Queer Eye. Those are my only memories as a young person with gays. Everything mm-hmm. else was the narrative of gays by straight people. So like Philadelphia, straight people for other straight people. And then it's always the gay, you know, AIDS or kicked out of their family or we were used as a joke or we were, you know, it was like, it was so taboo that it was either treated so seriously that you cried or it was treated so ridiculously that you just laughed at us. Right. So there was no in between. So I didn't even understand the concept of like, where do I belong? Right. It's almost like you were, when you finally were given the option to live as a gay person, you had to pick like, what, what kind, what kind are you kind allowed of, to be in society? Kind, or, that that right. has to be incredibly infuriating to feel like you're kind of dictated towards in terms of your identity. Do you, do you think, does it upset you that you kind of, I mean, in a lot of ways, you're kind of forced to be um, a pioneer or a, a good example, right? Like there are on, on Instagram or in your shows or whatever else, like there are plenty of ways where you could just um, get away with not um, announcing your gayness or, um, you know, whatever it is, like you could, you could get away with not addressing it. Do you feel, does it, does it upset you that you kind of have been forced to be a good example? I think straight people have a very strange concept of being gay. And a lot of people think it's a compliment to say to me, you're a gay comic, but it's not all about being gay. And that's why you're great. Or you're, you're a gay comic, but you're not like the others. Or I like you because you don't always talk about being gay. Like, I don't think they understand how much homophobia it's soaked in homophobia. In other words, what they're saying is they see me doing comedy and think, oh, good. He's, a, he's doing this for straight people. And he's doing, you know, to me, being gay and being a gay comic or being having gay material, I, have it, I, I do not view it as anything but me being myself. Mm-hmm. And I know that right now I have to label it as gay because a lot of people, it just, I just categorizing everything is really complicated. But what I'm trying to say is I am a gay man. I have sex with gay men. I love Mariah and Liza Minnelli and I talk effeminate and my best friends are drag queens. I love drag race. I love, there's all these like very stereotypical things about being a gay person. And I'm not doing it because I think that that's what I have to do. I'm doing it because it feels natural to me to lean towards those things or like those things. And so that's my life. Mm-hmm. So I'm talking about my life on stage and people will watch it and either think he talks too much about being gay or none. You just, you clearly, if you think I'm talking way too much about being gay on stage, you have a problem. You have a yeah. problem with I, gay I mean, people. I mean, I'm kind of liken it in my mind to if you were black or you had one arm or you were in a wheelchair or whatever. Like I am a straight male comedian and I will do jokes about being a straight man and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, married to my wife or whatever. And no one will ever, whatever say to me, I'm glad that you did. Uh, you didn't talk too much about being straight or you, you didn't talk well, too much about being in a wheelchair. Like you right. did it, but it wasn't only for people in wheelchairs or something like that. Like it, it's be, interesting being a straight that you, man is the standard, right? 
And it's been the standard for the past 70 years. So even though we've had gay comics, queer comics, trans comics, black comics, Latin comics, female comics, for years now, because we still quote unquote, the standard is straight man, specifically straight white men, and anything that's not that is somehow categorized as other. Mm -hmm. And I, I hope that that changes because I don't think that that should be that like, why not have a gay man's perspective be the standard for comedy or why, like, why not a black woman be the standard for comedy? Like people just can't wrap their minds around it. And I think mm -hmm. that that's, that's a lot of what this summer was about and black lives matter. And obviously pride every year. And it's, it's this constant of trying to change the narrative of don't let this one thing define the rest of us, because essentially my entire career has been fighting that standard mm -hmm. and being constantly compared to it by so, everybody. So that has to upset you though, right? Like that has to upset you that you have to, you have this other hurdle, right? And it's not only about being funny. You also have to, in some ways, change minds of people in the industry or just audiences at large and be like, look, I'm just a comedian. I happen to be these, these things, but I'm just a comedian. Does it, does right. it bother you that this, this like, um, this hurdle has been cast onto you? Yes, but the only times it doesn't is when I go on the road and people who know me come to see me and I feel like I'm not, it all melts away. But everything yeah. else, trying to sell a special, trying to sell a TV show, trying to get booked on the road, trying to, my sexuality is first and for, be, before my jokes, before my credits, before my personality, my sexuality is the first thing they focus on. Yeah. And I think a lot of straight guys have this idea that, well, now we're being washed out and diversity is being, being brought in. But you have to remember, the, the industry has allotted only room for one of each. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if Joel Kim Booster gets something, not that I'm out, but it's like, we're, we're all going for the same thing. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Where in my mind, I'm like, I, I see, why can't Joel and I be on the same show? Why can't well, we be I, I booked remember... on the same, you know? Right. I remember um, when we were starting out in New York City that it was uncommon to see two women on a show. Now I feel like the, mm -hmm. it's it's way more common in almost a 50-50 split or, the, you know, the diversity is through the roof in terms of New York shows. And I think that's really great and gives the audience a, overall a better show. Yeah. Um, the but seller, I remember it being uncommon. The, the Cellar is one of the few places I've had that has ultimate diversity from... John Laster hosting, Jessica Kirsten going up first, then me, then Jay McBride, then, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, you know, John Fish. It's like, you're getting, you know, ending with Joyelle, like that, that's a typical night. Mm -hmm. The seller is the one time it was like, oh, wow, we have a black man, a lesbian Jewish woman, a trans woman, a gay man, and a black woman all on one show. The thing I love most about, Great. right. And the thing I love most about the seller and about just everything, everything that you're speaking to is that I think in, this is just a quick aside about comedy because this is kind of off topic, but it's that it's one of the only spots in our art form that feels like a meritocracy where it's like, if you're funny, you're going to get in there and you're going to work there. Um, Correct. there are lots of funny people that don't work there, but my point is that there, 
if you work hard enough and you get an opportunity and you do a good job, you're going to get in there because they, they have people from literally all walks of life. Yeah. Um, which is just a, it's kind of refreshing when in other places you, like you're saying, like you have to change minds or it's, there's always an extra thing like, well, we have a, a show about, um, uh, horses so we can't have another show about horses or whatever. Right. It is. Um, yeah, SD, SD has done an amazing job in my view of not booking people based off of, um, you know, credits or anything, diversity anything. and I just, are they unknown. funny? I had nothing right. going on when right. I got in. Right. Um, but I also want to just say like these conversations, I don't want anyone to think or feel that this is coming from a place of bitterness. I, I'm, it's just a place of awareness. I'm not bitter or angry at the industry or public or this or that. I'm very aware of, of changing minds, not changing minds, at some point it has, it just boiled down to, am I doing what makes me happy? Yeah. Okay. Then every, what, whatever else happens is truly out of my control. I mean, I wish there was more opportunities for me to sit with Solomon Giorgio and Joel Kim Booster and, you know, uh, Julio Torres and Patty Harrison. And, and like, I wish there were more opportunities for all of us to just be together all the time. Cause I love and admire these people, but uh, you know, I think as we move forward, there's progress. And, and um, I think too, now, like the industry has become less, has, has, has much less of a grip over artists and artists are creating their own content and in their own control and finding their own fan base. And I think that's also a huge positive. I mean, especially in 2020 where everyone was forced in their homes. It was like, fine, I'll create my own content. I don't need a, uh, some agent or some manager or some, producer to tell me I'm worth it. I'll be worth it myself. Right. So what do you do when you're not feeling positive? Cause I know that you go through just as many ups and downs as me or anybody when you're feeling like eh, there's no, there's, I'm not going to be able to accomplish what I want, which is a symbolic death because my, my purpose or my mission in life, whatever word you want to use is to accomplish things and share my art. That's my internal thing to reconcile is that you want to share your art. Mm -hmm. What do you do when you feel like it's an impossible task? Always have something else to work on. It's as simple as that. Always, always have something else to work on. But what at this point? Well, I mean, it it doesn't matter. Like, do you have to change your perspective as far as what accomplishment is or what you want out of it? I follow what Joan Rivers says. I truly follow this. When I'm told no, or I don't get something that I worked really hard at, blah, blah, blah. I give myself a 24 hour pity party and move on mm-hmm. because I, there's, you gain nothing out of constantly feeling bad for yourself. So th- I've had tons of things at this point that is just no, 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 no. And you just keep going. You know what? It's like, uh, it's like I, I got, I didn't get the TV show that I wanted. Fine. Bob the drag queen and I were writing a comic book. Uh, you know, uh, while we're writing the comic book, I'm going to still do my spots. And while I'm doing my spots, uh, I'll try and work on a late night set. But if that doesn't work out, you know, uh, I'm going to do a cabaret show with Henry. We're going to sing and do a cabaret show. So it's like I have a bunch of stuff to focus on so that when one thing fails, I'm like, great, now I'll throw more energy into this. Or don't worry, I've got that. Or So you, you try know, to, I'm, I mean, is it, to, is it unfair to say that you try to outrun these bad nope. feelings? Nope. 
It's not, it's, it's not about that. I've accepted that there is just going to be walls that I cannot cross or, or break through. Uh, but that doesn't mean I can't dig under that wall. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Mm -hmm. So to me, it's not like I failed. So I'm going to run away from accepting that rejection. It's they don't see that right now, but look what else I have. So it's it, the larger goal is here. I'm using all these other things to get to that larger goal. So is it a willpower not, thing? Is it a will, like you just will yourself to find another way? And if it is, why do you, where does that come from? Because I don't know if that's inherent to other people. Probably not. I, it's just who I've always been. I mean, mm -hmm. you can ask my mom. I was, my brother and sister both drew, but for some reason I just took it to a level that was this neurotic compulsion to draw. I, my favorite memories as a child is waiting until everybody else either went to bed or left the room. And I sat at the kitchen table with a ream of paper fresh white sheets and a marker and I draw and every time I made a mistake flip it under and draw again never erasing never going back my mother screamed at me use the back stop this please erase but I was just <laughs> I will get this till I get this right going to Staples and getting a giant pack of post-its was like Christmas day for me because I could do flip books and animations and then borrow my cousin's camcorder so that I could make animation and like do a whole Maleficent animation with big paper and then put it on the wall, click next one on the wall, click, and then watch it on video. I just was always drawn to look what I did and I can get more out of this. Mm -hmm. And so that kind of mentality, I think it's just innate in who I am as a person. And the easiest way for me to sort of release those demons is through art. So whether that's singing or drawing or stand up, but I, I just, a, a neurotic compulsion to keep working, keep going, keep moving, keep working, keep going, keep creating, keep going. Do you feel lucky in that sense to have to have that? Like, I mean, I know you don't know how to live in any other way. Sure. So do you feel um, lucky to, to have a, a such a desire to create? I think that yeah, I feel lucky. I mean, I think I was given a lot of not natural talent. I mean, I'm not even going to I'm not like trying to get a swollen head over here, but no, I think no, it's, it's, no, it's, I mean, it's a true thing. It's right. Uh, but I think also my, um, internalized, uh, homophobia and struggle with my identity and being bullied and all that kind of stuff really came really like forced me to observe more than other people and have to find ways to express myself. And I was just lucky that I had a natural base of of natural talent to do so. So I think it, I think in a way I created because it was one, a natural ability and two, I, I needed to survive somehow. Mm -hmm. I needed something to, to live for, to have identity with, you know? Um, yeah. So I think it's part, I think if I was a straight person with the same amount of capabilities and talent, that I probably would not have pushed myself as hard because I don't know that this is just generally speaking, but well, something to prove it also, I think when you're queer, you really do live on the outside of society. You're just sort of observing society. I don't think straight people really quite get the script that's laid out for them because your life is pretty much laid out for you with the second you're born. You know, you go through school, boys play sports, girls wear dresses. You know, this is very generic and generally speaking, right? Yeah, but and you my vote experience. for homecoming queen and king. Homecoming king and queen. 
poster boards, movies, magazines, cartoons, everything is types of jobs. But everything, everything around you visually, a, a billboard, a magazine cover, it's man, woman, man, woman, man, woman, man, woman, man, woman, man, woman. So, you know, when you're, for my experience, a young queer person, this little gay kid, and you know that that's not what you are, or what you, you are forced to observe. And you're forced to watch other people kind of have this, it's like, like they were lubed up and sliding through life. And I was just sort of like crawling and trying to figure out like, where's my place and so i think if i was straight with all this with the same amount of capabilities that i have now i probably wouldn't have felt the neurotic need to prove myself prove my worth or find my identity or my need my 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 my, my the meaning of my own existence yeah because it just would have been easier i would have been someone who's like yeah i can draw i can pick it up it's easy but for me it was like this is life or death which the, the, i the find meaning, a lot of, the meaning was to create the meaning was to share which I think you can look at, you look at queer people and we really do idolize like these women or like there's things are very important to us or TV or pop culture. And I, I don't think it's any accident. I think it's because those were the only outlets we had to see a life other than ourselves. Yeah, so, you know, I, I think it's like if you're observing the society and all you see is black and white, like Pleasantville, the moment you see mm -hmm. something that is a, you know, metaphorical pop of color um that's you're going to be attracted to that and so i don't think it's it's um i think it makes sense when there are these like gay icons i'm always fascinated by gay icons and how it's like why is like elizabeth taylor um or uh maleficent or any disney villain really but it's like why right. why is like why does it seem like every gay person likes because this particular they, disney villain they were the other it was they the thing the, that stuck they out. They were the other. You know, what business do I have caring about Aladdin or Jasmine? Right. You know, I and I know this sounds funny, but I related to Jafar. Secretive, you know, um, dramatic and hiding and this. And it's like in the shadows. Like, um, you know, I think Barbara Streisand answered it well on Inside the Actors Studio. This gay guy said, you know, why is it you think you became such a gay icon? She goes, because I was different. I was out of the mold. You know, mm -hmm. everyone said, cap your teeth, change your nose, sing like this, wear that. I said, no. And because I was different, I think that other she people who out, felt right. different could, right. And there's you know? something so, to be said about um, being true to yourself. And, and when people are searching for an identity, that's going to be an attractive thing to emulate or strength. to see or to just see in yourself. Right. Like I find, you know, and, and I hope this continues to change to see a lot of uh, different types of queer people become icons in the same way that Streisand or Judy Garland or Liza Minnelli, a lot of these, you know, cisgendered women. It's like, I, I hope that we can start moving into a place where um, we can have all different types of, you know, I really think Drag Race has done such a good job uh, promoting melting gay, gay people as gay icons, right? Not so much gay people's gay icons. It's just queer people. It's it's a it's a and that show's evolved as well, obviously. But it was it's it's as far as I can remember, one of the first mainstream shows made by and for queer people, not yeah. by straight people for straight people using queer people. It's by queer people for queer people using drag queer language, you know, um, and, and melting away the idea of, 
of masculinity and how that's defined and being okay um, being effeminate or not having to present always as man, you know, and I think it's done a really good job at, you know, I, I have gay voice, which is something I used to be super insecure about. Now I'm like, fuck it. I love it. This is just who I am and how I talk. And I think shows like that showing people from all different walks of life coming together in a community and creating art and, and celebrating who they are and, and what they are. And it's just, it's so liberating to watch. I sound like an old person who's discovered no, a cell phone. <laughs> it's like, and they <laughs> all they know is Sputnik, you know, but it's like, that's kind of what it is. I, I think as queer people, we're, we're always forced to observe ourselves and change with ourselves, evolve yeah. with ourselves and not just say, we're gay, this is who we are. This is the gay flag, that's what we are. No. We're constantly changing. Identity is changing, and evolve with it, and and, and uh, embrace it. Mm -hmm. I've made I, I've made mistakes in the past and things I've said, but I've learned. Right. I I think what I like most about hearing this from you is that a lot of the people that I've talked to so far, I haven't talked to any gay people. You're the first gay person that I've talked to about the, about all these subjects. Um, is that for you, a, a lot of meaning is derived in expressing yourself. And through mm. that is the way that you connect with other people. When I'm talking mm. to other people, they typically are giving me answers that they derive meaning in service to others. And they try to find out what that is, whether it be like a financial assistance to people or um, just being kind or like do, serving at food banks and all these different kinds of like acts of service. But what I think is so interesting, because about what you're saying is that you're you're helping other people in a very grand scheme by reconciling the things that you need to reconcile to be happy and to be and to feel feel fulfilled. Yeah, I think that there's a lot to say about by the way, I do donate and give to charity. Oh, I'm not saying that you don't do those things. I'm not saying I'm that you kidding. don't I'm, kidding. I'm, I'm saying kidding. that's what their like number one thing is that they're saying is like that's the meaning of my life is to do acts of service. And they don't and right. it's and I think it's an what you're saying is really interesting and really like it puts me at ease. Because I'm not always out there doing acts of service and stuff. I'm trying to reconcile these things internally and share them and, and hope that that helps other people. And I think that a lot of comedians feel that way or any artist. Yeah. And I think that you're putting such a great, um, putting that type of service into perspective. And I really like, I really like this. Well, I'm, I know my capabilities and I know what my strengths and weaknesses are. And I know what inspired me as a child and so that's pretty much what I have to work from uh you know I don't know we'll see we'll see what happens <laughs> we'll see what happens in the future but um I, I don't know I mean I, I've gotten to a point in my life now where I'm like obviously this pandemic is a fucking nightmare because you know we can't go out and do all the things we want to do the way we want to do them but um even in that I feel like I'm even more ready now to go back on stage or mm -hmm. Um, it took a second for me to like really care about what I'm saying on stage or how I'm presenting on stage or what, how things mean to me. Um, maybe in a way I didn't really think about before, you know, yeah. again, it's about evolving and always checking yourself and, and, and evolving with the times and, and how does humor evolve with the times and accepting that challenge rather than 
putting your feet in the ground and saying, this is what's funny to me. And anyone who doesn't believe in that is an idiot kind of thing. Yeah. I, um, I don't know. I don't know if I have any more questions. I feel like it's, this has been really helpful and for a lot of people to hear for me to hear, um, in way in like how, what it is that you derive meaning in and and how you go about expressing that. Mm -hmm. So thank you. Sure. No big deal. Also, if you want to watch me play video games every night, follow me on Twitch as Mateo Mariah. <laughs> That's great. You're the only one that uh, has thought to plug anything. I should have been asking people. Yes, of course. I want people to follow me while I play Fortnite every night with Yamanika Saunders. It is very entertaining, and it's it like it does the soul good because I have watched a couple of times, and it is it's just really nice. It's to me, Twitch has become like a long because I can't do TikTok, and so it's like I'm too old, and it's too like it requires. It's too so much fleeting. Like, it's the thing that yeah, makes yeah, me yeah. feel it's like fleeting. there is no meaning and there is no purpose right. is TikTok and these like little things that like you enjoy for a minute. They take a lot of work to do. You enjoy them for mm -hmm. maybe, maybe a minute before you swipe if you watch the whole thing and then it's gone. <laughs> and it's yeah. like when I'm dead, is, do I want to just have a TikTok page? Is that what I want to well, show for my life? Again, that's, that's where we're moving. But, you know, I like Twitch in the sense that it, to me, it's like a, a podcast every night. You have a different group of comedians or people on conversations change and you have a common goal, right? Mm -hmm. So we could be talking drag race, for example, and shooting people at the same time. Right, right. You know, it's like a very strange way of doing a podcast or a show, but I really enjoy it. I have had, yeah. I've, I've packed all my shit so I can stream when I get to Indiana. That's great. I have one more question I thought of. Sure. And I will leave you off. I'll leave you um, alone after this because I know you have to get going. But what what is it that you want to like when you're old and you look back, what is it that you want to have accomplished? Is there ever a point where you feel like that's OK, that's enough? Can you even see can you even see that for yourself? Yeah, I think if I'm older and I'm on my deathbed, and I'm thinking about my life. I would like to. um think of how I did not live a boring life. I wasn't boring. Christopher Hitchens said that. He said the worst thing you can do in life is be boring. And I really agree with that. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people are going to hear that and be scared. They're like, oh my God, am I boring? And then make major well, changes in their that's life. That's up but... for them to determine or define what boring means to them. Right. But to me, I, I did I take every single risk possible? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I did. I really, really did. Would you I, advise other people to take every single risk? I advise people to do what, what feels... I Again, I just knew that I was going to do this. Mm -hmm. So to me, it wasn't a risk. It was a step closer. I mean, I went to arts. I almost failed out of high school because I didn't show up to class. I didn't do homework. I was bullied. It was not nice. Although senior year was kind of fun. Um, and then... I got into a community college, took one art class just to make my mother happy. That teacher happened to be a teacher from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, the best art school in the world. And he immediately recognized my talent, pulled me aside, helped me develop five big, large drawings for Portfolio Day. I walked down to Portfolio Day at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago in the museum, which is like American Idol. They have thousands of kids coming from all over the country to present their portfolios. And there's just a line of teachers saying, yes, no, you know, kids leaving, crying. I showed them five black and white drawings. They looked at it, her jaw dropped. 
She grabbed the other teacher. They went over there. They both looked at it. And now all the other kids are staring at me. And they sent me a sheet of paper that said, you're accepted to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. And I mean, my life changed. I Then I went to school for art. And I loved school. I absorbed it. I spent all day, all night in the studios, sleeping in the studios, painting all day, and thought, okay, now that I have this art working at the same time, now that I have this art degree, what do I do with it? I'll take a risk. I flew myself to New York. I asked a million people, emailed a million strangers about you know, storyboarding and how to do it and this and that. And finally, my friend Alex's mom at lunch told me she knew a guy in New York who worked in advertising, who worked for a storyboarding house, who might know people. And then if I go to New York and meet with him, he could help me. So I bought a ticket, flew to New York, stayed in my friend Kate's apartment, which is the one I lived in with a bathtub in the kitchen. Yes. Met this complete stranger, showed him my drawings. He liked them, showed this other guy who knew a storyboarding agency. They connect with me. He said, you have to develop a new portfolio in order to work for us. I spent an entire month redoing my entire portfolio, drawing TV commercials. They said, yes, I started drawing TV commercials like Littlest Pet Shops and all this other stuff. Worked my way up till I got a job moving me to New York, right? And I'd started doing stand-up at night. So I moved to New York. And I had this drawing job and I said, good, now I'll draw during the day, I'll do stand up at night. So I would leave work an hour early. I'd come to work an hour early and leave work an hour early. So I could do open mics from 5 p.m. to 2 a.m. with Evan Williams every day, work all the way through that. And then just left my 401k, my salary, my insurance, because I got on a shitty MTV show and I thought, good, now I'm on a TV show. Now I'll make it. So it took a huge risk and then just, I don't know. I just kept going. I just kept going and yeah. going and going and going. And you were there for a lot of that. And it was like it. I, I was there before I, you moved. I think I've been there for all of it. That's right. I met you right before I moved. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really did. It, it, I, I did take a lot of risk leaving my family, leaving friends, breaking up with boyfriends, leaving jobs. And, you know, and, and I think we'll, we can leave on this because I have to get running soon. But I, I remember my friend Pat, who I respect almost more than anyone in the world. I think he's the smartest, smartest funniest person on the face of the planet. They, they just had a podcast from 2003 that was gay men talking, which single-handedly saved my life because I'd never heard gay people speak before. So I didn't know we could have a sense of humor about our sexuality. And I just think he's so funny. And we became friends. And he had this job. Worked forever. Very, very safe life. He worked for this guy and they were best friends. He was an administrative assistant at a a podiatrist's office. His friend died of a heart attack. And Pat was left with, you know, life is in shambles. This was my entire identity. So he just got some shit job to keep busy, you know, in the Sears Tower. And he realized it wasn't making him happy. And he said, I want to quit. And all of his friends told him, don't quit. It's security. It's a job. You'll get a pension. You'll get this. So I didn't know that. He called me and I said, you should quit. You should absolutely quit. You got money from your ex-boss. What would he want you to do? Use that money to sit in a building and rot away? Become a writer. Do something you've always wanted to do. Write that book. Be the, you know, and he almost in tears said, you are the first person to tell me to quit the job. He goes, Mateo, I just have to tell you, what you do is so incredibly brave because so many people do not want security is the most important thing to them. And they stop themselves from living their dreams and living their life 
because they need a feeling of security. He goes, I can't, I cannot stress enough with you how, how incredibly courageous it is what you're doing, which I never viewed it that way Yeah. until he pointed it out to me that way. And I thought, I think he's right. We're obviously in the world of comedians where we've all taken a risk, but outside of the comedy world, I don't think many people take those kinds of risks. And yeah, I think it's, it, it's, that, that step, I took a step, I took a pause. Yeah. To unearth your life at any age. Um, and get on a plane and move somewhere else to chase a dream. Um, that's not the only way that you can find meaning in your life, but I'm really happy that you did. I'm really happy that I did. It's found me oh, a thank wife. Thank you and, so much. Well, it's, it's found me real connections that I value in my life. And it's so hard to remember those. It's so hard to remember that every day. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, I don't know if it's an exercise in gratitude or what it is that people need to do or that I need to do, but I think um, when you look back the way that I'm so happy to hear that I didn't know anything about this teacher and the, and the, the art school and all that is like so fascinating. And I can see, um, parallels to my own choices and people that I've had in my life. And it's just really, really nice to hear. And I hope that people, um, feel that way when they listen to that. Just, just remember life will always, there will always be a hand grabbing for you in life. It, it's always there. It's just whether you grab back. And recognize and I, it, yeah. And recognize it. And I think I'm very proud of myself for a lot of my life. I've recognized that hand reaching out. And I always grabbed back. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this with me. And um, enjoy your flight. Oh, I had so much fun. This is a lot of fun. <laughs> thanks thanks Ryan thanks for listening if you'd like to support the podcast head to patreon.com slash Ryan Beck and follow me at at I am Ryan Beck on Twitter and Instagram and be sure to check out my other podcast Falling in Love with My Wife available everywhere you get your podcasts thanks The Meaning of Life is produced by Ryan Beck edited by Ryan Beck And the music is by Shakir Stanley. Thanks for listening.